Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dan Francesco, and I am the Deputy Editor of Cellside Technology, and I am not joined by U.S. Editor Anthony Malikian. My uh, co-host is on vacation in Raleigh this week, so I was on vacation last week and I had the week off, and this week he's on vacation. But without Anthony, I've still provided a great set of co-hosts, uh, Paul Chow, CEO and co-founder of LedgerX, and Zach Dexter, also a co-founder and the CTO of LedgerX, which uh, is the trading and clearing firm for options on Bitcoin. They are uh, my guests this week. Uh, we'll get to them in just a minute. We spoke about the uh, Bitfinex uh, hack, which uh, saw over 119,000 Bitcoins stolen. Um, it was a great conversation. We touched on a lot of different things. The overall impact of this, the tech angle of this, uh, the regulatory angle of this. Touched on all different things. Uh, Paul and Zach are very smart guys. They know a lot more about the Bitcoin space than I do. So that's why I enlisted their help and they graciously obliged. And uh, I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation. That's it for me. Um, I'm just going to let them let it that, let get right into that because I think it's a great interview. Um, but uh, we should be we should be back to our uh, regular programming next week. Um, you know, but we'll continue to have guests on when we deem necessary. Um, but uh, once again, uh, next up is uh, Paul Chow, CEO and co-founder of uh, LedgerX, and Zach Dexter, uh, CTO and co-founder. All right, hello, and we are here joined now by Paul Chow and Zach Dexter. Paul is the CEO and co-founder of LedgerX, and Zach Dexter is the CTO and co-founder as well. And we're talking today about what happened with Bitfinex. Obviously, it's been all over the news um, in terms of the uh, ooh, chair moved a little bit in terms of the uh, the hack that went down. Um, One hundred nineteen thousand seven hundred fifty six bitcoins were stolen in a breach. Still a lot. It's not that's unsure about it, but still some things are coming out. And you know, I've spoken to Paul and Zach before uh, for an open source story, um, and they were of great help. And uh, by the way, LedgerX, the you know trading and clearing firm. Um, for options on Bitcoin. So these guys definitely know what they're talking about. They're very knowledgeable about the industry. So I thought it'd be worthwhile to, uh, to have them on. So Zach, Paul, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on. Thanks for having us here. Uh, so I guess to start, we'll just so brief recap. If you haven't read anything, uh, 119,756 uh, Bitcoins. And by the way, Paul or Zach, jump in at any point if you see you know, if I'm, if I'm incorrect in anything, 119, over 119,000 Bitcoins stolen in hack, uh, roughly as of Wednesday's early afternoon estimates was about 67 million. That was the price then. I don't know how much that's changed. Um, it's Bitfinex is the largest exchange in terms of USD denominated, uh, transactions over the past 30 days. That's according to Bitcoin charts. Um, and according to, uh, Tur de Meester, uh, who's at Adamant Research, it's the third largest heist in uh, Bitcoin history, first being Mt. Gox, being 850,000 Bitcoins stolen, second being Silk Road, 171,955 Bitcoins stolen. So I guess to start, what's you guys are a lot smarter at this than I am. What's the, the general overview of, of what went down on Tuesday? Well, you know, first we should emphasize that it's still very early on, as you mentioned. Absolutely. It happened just, um, you know, a day, two days ago. So I, I think, you know, we have to give quite a bit of time to, to analyze exactly the full scope of the attack. But as you mentioned, it does look like a very substantial um, amount of Bitcoin has been stolen irretrievably. And like you said, maybe one of the top three to five 
um, thefts of Bitcoin of all time. And it looks like it was sort of a cybersecurity issue, as would be imagined for this kind of scenario with the exchange itself. And as they, they work through all these issues about um, you know, how exactly it happened, and in, in particular because Bitfinex is very different in a sense from Algox, um, they obviously offer a lot more products than just spot trading. So it's not just a platform to buy and sell just regular Bitcoin as Mt. Gox was. They offered leverage instruments, so futures, things that would give people and speculators quite a bit of ability to to, um, to, to kind of take a view on Bitcoin's price and how that will kind of play out as, as the kind of theft of Bitcoin um, kind of is resolved, uh, we'll have to see. But it's definitely a substantial heist. But again, still very early days in terms of our analysis or the community's analysis of exactly what happened here. Absolutely. Yeah, Zach, you have anything to add? Yeah, so some of the, the, the speculation that's going around, again, not really confirmed yet, but uh, people are saying that you know, Bitfinex had a two or three multi-signature wallets, so you had to have two control over two of the three private keys in order to sign a Bitcoin transaction and transfer Bitcoin out of Bitfinex. And supposedly, again, not confirmed, but the attacker was able to take control of, of two of those keys, uh, the one used by the third-party uh, multi-signature service, not directly, but by issuing calls to that service by taking control of Bitfinex, uh, Bitfinex's tech infrastructure, and the Bitfinex key, in their uh, essentially their their hot wallet, uh, so the attacker was actually able to get in there, uh, use one key to sign a transaction, and command another key to sign a transaction, which is essentially just a classic security breach. Uh, there's nothing special here uh, about Bitcoin in the breach. It's just a you know a, a, a typical cybersecurity incident. At least that's what it's looking like. So uh, I want one question. So the the three the multi signature. It's Bitfinex holds one. Then uh, BitGo, I believe, is right. The, th- the third party that holds a- another one, is that correct? Yeah, so there, there are three. Bitfinex uh, has, a, has a backup key uh, and holds a, a hot key. And yeah, BitGo, the third party provider, does hold that third key. And typically in a signing transaction, you don't use that backup key that Bitfinex has. That's only if the, one of the other keys is lost. So in the, your typical transaction, you'll say, okay, uh, I'm Bitfinex. I would like to transfer, you know, five Bitcoin to, to Bob. I'm going to sign that transaction with my key on my tech infrastructure. Then you send a request to BitGo uh, using the BitGo API to sign that transaction uh, using the BitGo key. So it, it doesn't look like, you know, BitGo was compromised or the BitGo key was compromised. It was simply someone got into their infrastructure, uh, supposedly, and, and commanded a signing. Right. So that's that's one thing, I, you know, uh, Zane Tackett, who's the, the Bitfinex's director of community product development, doing the Lord's work on Reddit, just responding to all these poor people that have had their, you know, their Bitcoin stolen. Um, it's, you know, it kind of reminds last summer we had. It's definitely a thankless job. To yeah, do something like that. seriously. We, we, you know, I can appreciate how hard that is for him to do. Yeah, so. it's, Kudos it's, to him. It's yeah. crazy. You know, you think, I, I, it reminds me of last summer, I remember the New York Stock Exchange has the outage, and it's kind of, you get a couple tweets, and that's it. And meanwhile, you have Bitfinex with somebody personally responding to, you know, thousands of inquiries on a Reddit. But yeah, at 2 a.m. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he, uh, he did say that. He said it looked – one of the posts I saw, I think it was from yesterday, was it looks like it was a fault on our end. So – and again, this is – nothing's certain yet. Nothing's been officially said. But it, So it looks like the, the hacker or the hackers went through Bitfinex and got their signature in terms of on that end, right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. It, it, supposedly the hacker was able to uh, get the Bitfinex private key or command a signing by the Bitfinex private key, then send that signed transaction to BitGo and override – 
uh, not through any fault of BitGo's, but but through uh, errors on the the Bifinex side, uh, override the alerting and stopgap procedures that BitGo has in place. For example, you can't transfer a certain volume of Bitcoin in a certain time period. Uh, problem is, with these third-party signing APIs, if you store those credentials on the same server where you store your hot wallet Bitcoin private key, the attacker who breaches that server is going to get your hot wallet Bitcoin private key, and they're going to get the credentials for the third-party signing API. So that means if I, attacker, would like to steal Bitcoin, I use that hot wallet key to sign because I'm in the server. And since I'm in the server, I then command the uh, third-party signing API to turn off all of its alerting and all of its uh, protections against large amounts of being of Bitcoin being transferred out. And at that point, I effectively can just transfer uh, whatever I want by sending commands to the third-party signing API. So again, classic security breach, nothing here that's Bitcoin-specific, um, nothing that is, is a flaw in the protocol uh, at all, nothing that's a flaw in multi-signature, just typical IT breach. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we always try to emphasize is that, as Zach mentioned, this is just classic stealing of credentials and being able to do certain things. It's not limited to Bitcoin. I mean, we saw there is a, a very sophisticated um, cyber attack on the Bangladesh Central Bank that's mm-hmm. interfaced with the SWIFT system. Yep. Almost $100 million was stolen. And that's through the traditional FedWire network, the SWIFT system globally for all these like, large correspondent right. banks. That was the, the wire through the Fed, right? Yeah, exactly. It went right through the Fed and it was approved. So as is the case in this case, as it was there with the Bangladesh Central Bank, a lot of these things are just kind of internal processes, procedures that have to be thought about carefully, not, again, specific to Bitcoin. Okay. One thing, and again, Reddit can be a beautiful thing or an awful thing because it's a lot of people that just spit out their opinions. One thing I see a lot of is the users, the Bitfinex users, their arms are kind of throwing their arms up in the air saying, what about cold storage? This all could have been saved if there was $100 spent on you know, some type of cold storage. What is that correct in their saying or are they completely off base? Um, sort of. So the Bitfinex, uh, the Bitfinex users on Reddit are making a couple of claims. Uh, one claim with regard to cold storage is that somehow the CFTC prevented Bitfinex from using cold storage, which right. is totally false, uh, as are many other things on Reddit. And the <laughs> fact that Reddit has become a sort of a hub for the Bitcoin community is good in some ways and bad in others, right? It's an incident response place. It's a, it's a place for wild speculation. Um, and a lot of the speculation on there is not very well informed. So with regard to the claim that the CFTC made Bitfinex not use cold storage, again, totally false. Uh, the CFTC action against Bitfinex was related to an actual delivery exemption. Um, and the CFTC was, was simply talking about who had control of the majority of keys in Bitfinex's multi-signature wallet. And whether those keys are stored on Pluto or Mars or, you know, under the beach, ten feet uh, under ten feet of sand doesn't matter. Hot or cold, you can store them in an oven. Um, the point is about control and ownership, not about where they're stored. Um, so cold storage is 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 good. Uh, it's it's not the only solution. And Bitfinex's Bitfinex did change their infrastructure um, to use more of a hot wallet setup, but that was was only incidentally related to the CFTC action. Uh, and sorry, and, just, to, just this, you're referencing the CFTC fine Bitfinex $75,000. It was for inadequate customer account segregation, and that was back in June. That's what you're referring yeah, to. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, a key issue here is just that the regulators want to have an understanding. When you do a transaction, 
does the customer, the end user, actually take delivery of what's now being seen by a lot of regulators as a commodity? So now we have to define what delivery means. So if you have a one big commingled account with a lot of digital currencies and you have internal ledger entries that say Bob has X amount of that percentage, you know, Alice has the other one, that's one thing, versus delivery where the person has the underlying um, commodity, in this case Bitcoin, which would you know, make a lot of these situations less risky because what they're really caring about is, is there a central depository that if it were somehow compromised, would have an effect where they would lose customer assets, which is exactly what happened here, whereas it'd be a lot more resilient if the customers were just taking the commodity right away so that there's no central point of attack for a large cyber intrusion like this one, for example. So that, that's just to give you a sense of one of the considerations when regulators look at these types of operations. Sure. So I guess the, the next question is, going forward, where do things go from here? Bitfinex already announced, I believe it was today, that uh, it's going to be they're going to honor trades up to... I think it was uh, two o'clock East Coast time. I believe it was. I'm not quite sure, but I don't. I'd have to look at that again. Um, but still, no word on you know anything else. What, where do, where do you see Bitfinex going from here? And again, this is just speculation. We're not sure. And also, where do you see? And you touched on it, the the regulators now going from here from this you know an, another attack or another hack on on Bitcoin. Well, uh, one great direction um, that I think we would like to see from a from a regulatory perspective is an increased focus on uh, cybersecurity with respect to Bitcoin storage and transactions. So the model today says basically you should store a large amount of your Bitcoin in cold storage where you have air-gapped laptops and you sign those transactions offline so a hacker can't get in. There's no network connection. Uh, and then you, you store a small percentage of those coins in a so-called hot wallet. Um, the problem with hot wallets is that they can be hacked. They're like any other computer. It's just a you know a server sitting there, and there are vulnerabilities, and you know many many of those servers, if not all, uh, and, and a sufficiently sophisticated attacker is really always going to be able to breach a hot wallet. So the traditional finance industry actually has a lot to offer here. Um, banks have been using things like trusted platform modules and hardware security modules for many years for any everything from credit card transactions uh, to ledger transactions. That is a best practice that the Bitcoin industry has yet to adopt. So, you know, storing a bunch of Bitcoin offline in air-gapped laptops is good, but at some point you have to make transactions. And if you're going to be doing that out of your hot wallet, um, your hot wallet may get hacked. So the, the solution there is really do not use hot wallets. Use, uh, use specialized hardware devices that don't allow people to run arbitrary code. You don't want to be storing credentials and private keys on servers uh, or in software wallets. You need to be using a trusted platform module or a hardware security module, just as traditional finance has, has been doing for many years. And I think that you know, that's that's a direction that Bitcoin needs to go in in order to prevent more of these incidents from happening. Um, another problem with this is, uh, with, a, with the current approach, is people are always driving to the, the vault <laughs> to kind of unlock the keys and uh, unlock a lot of the Bitcoin in cold storage. So you literally have to, you know calculate your gas costs and send that to your CFO and get a little reimbursement <laughs> ticket. It's ridiculous. Um, whereas with the TPM or HSM approach, you've got this specialized server that is you know, very, very difficult, if not impossible to hack. Um, the, the Internet's biggest companies, VeriSign, Google, rely on it to secure the Internet itself. Uh, and you can have a kind of a cross between a cold and a hot wallet. The Bitcoin is available for signing at any time. But it's a highly isolated network connection in a specialized computer that can only run the signing commands. It literally can't run uh, commands sent by the attacker. 
so that is that is a good direction for the regulators to look at, and I think they will be looking in that direction. Yeah, so how quickly do you think that could that could happen? How quickly could the, the industry pivot to that? Because like you said, cold storage, it's just not practical in the long term because it's too, to physically go to these vaults and whatnot, it's, you know... It, they can't do that, and the hot wallet obviously has been proved before has been susceptible to attack. So, how quickly could the industry pivot to that type of model? So, this is the great news. Bitcoin is actually pretty mature from a tech perspective these days. You can go out and buy a specialized hardware security module for a couple hundred bucks that will store your Bitcoin, and and they're consumer grade. But even the consumer grade ones are very good. Uh, if you want something that can sign a lot of Bitcoin transactions per second, those are commercially available. Uh, so, you know, the, the purchase, uh, cycle on these things, I mean, it, it takes maybe a week to order one. So this is something that Bitcoin companies with a, you know, a reasonable security staff of, of two or three people can, can definitely handle pretty trivially. There are Bitcoin specific HSMs. There are HSMs that are not Bitcoin specific that can be adapted for Bitcoin. Um, so from an implementation perspective, this can happen now. So what's, what's holding firms back then you think? Well, uh, previously it was cost uh, because there were no Bitcoin-specific HSMs. But now there's not really an excuse. I mean, if you're storing Bitcoin and you have a, a hot wallet and you're running servers, you either need a very, very large, very experienced security staff that's better than liter- literally every other hacker in the world, or you need to be using uh, you know, a hardware security module or a trusted platform module. Those are the only solutions. Right. So there is no excuse now. The, the cost is, is so low and the implementation is so easy that this is where the industry needs to head. Absolutely. Did you, Paul, you have something to add? Well, you know, I, I think the regulators will definitely, as Zach mentioned, um, kind of re-examine a lot of these technology security practices. I'll, I'll kind of comment very quickly on something that's a little bit more mundane but equally as important, which is just that um, they're definitely going to push, from the regulatory point of view, more clarity from these kind of de facto exchanges as to what happens in these types of scenarios. Nobody ever wants to plan an exchange or a clearinghouse business with in mind that we might have to lose a substantial portion of our assets one day that we're holding um, as custody for our clients, but you have to. You know? So for example, here, if a subset of multi-sig addresses were, were, were compromised, what happens to the assets that weren't for the other customers? Are, are the losses sort of socialized? If you had some amount of Ether, you had some amount of US dollars, you had some amount of Bitcoin, and one portion that was stolen, and now um, the, the exchange or clearinghouse or whatever institution is now, in fact, in, in you know, insolvency, then what happens? And so I think it's important to have those policies and that resolution kind of procedure in place just so that people and customers, before they sign up for the platform, know exactly what happens here and how it's going to be handled. And I think that that's going to be an important evolution for, for the Bitcoin industry broadly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Zach, you mentioned it up top um, that this is you know just your basic, not well, not basic, but it's your standard security hat. It's a, it's a breach. It has nothing specific to, to Bitcoin. Yeah, but, that's correct. But you see how, you know, I'm looking at an FT story right now, and they have right on the top, recent prominent thefts from Bitcoin exchanges, Bitstamp. Coin, Coinopult, Bitfinex, Script, CC, and then Bitfinex again. Um, at the end of the day, you know, especially on the institutional side, this is always the concern. Whether it's fair or not, it's the, the, the mindset of this black cloud. You know, Silk Road always gets brought up. You know, where, how will this, do you think this is a, you know, it, it, obviously it is a, a major, uh, it's a step back, at least it seems, for Bitcoin. But do you think eventually they'll finally be able to get over that hurdle? What do you, do you think people understand, especially the tech people understand, that this is a breach, or is there still just the, uh, this is Bitcoin being Bitcoin, and this is just another reason why we don't want to get involved with it? I think the tech people definitely understand, the tech community understands, this is just a classic IT security breach. When when you're a tech person, you hear something like, oh yeah, the credentials were stored on the server, um, that's bad. 
for you know for years now the the best practice and again we have no idea to what extent Pifinex did or did not use this so i'm not not making any kind of accusations here sure. but um the best practice for storing credentials in the server has been well not to um so we'll we'll have to see how they got in but there are things like software vaults for your your bitco credentials uh that can you know unlock those when your program needs to sign a transaction but leave them secured for the rest of the time for 99% of the other time your exchange software is running so there are a number of basic um you know software and and hardware security procedures here that have been in place in other industries for many years that apparently were not in place in many of these bitcoin hacks and when you're a tech person and you see that you realize okay um, this is just a case where the industry needs to mature a little bit on the the risk and, and risk management side, the security side, uh, the security auditing side, and just come up to par with uh, companies like like Google and, and frankly a lot of the Silicon Valley companies that are you know have been have been operating very secure systems for many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Paul, we we sat here in February and we talked about. Bitcoin and kind of changing the perception from a lot of the firms on the institutional side. What do you do? You know, tomorrow you go out and you meet with firm XYZ. What do you say to them to explain to them why this is not something to be super concerned and why it's still a secure avenue to go down? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say to to a firm like that is that, you know, none of us are complacent here. You know, cybersecurity is this ongoing arms race. So I, I never see kind of a case where we'll all sit back and we think, it's all done. Bitcoin is safe. You know, nothing to worry about. As mm-hmm. I mentioned before, um, even a very heavily tested system like Swift was compromised to the tune of $100 million. Sure. Right. And, and that's something that's very well tested, very well understood. And, you know, Bitcoin is much younger than any system like that. And so naturally, a lot of these things are going to come up. You know, I would just add the comment that anytime you have finality of settlement in this kind of thing, this is cybersecurity is always going to be a risk. Mm-hmm. Right. And anytime something goes out the door and can't come back legally, will always or cryptographically in Bitcoin's case, we'll always have this sort of risk. So when we talk to clients about this, we say these are scenarios that we've have kind of considered internally for sure. Um, we engage with as many outside vendors that have complementary areas or even overlapping areas of expertise as us just to double check a lot of our work. And then we try to make sure we have processing workflows that are really, I think, in a lot of ways, like the weak points for organizations to make sure that you always have four eyes on something or three people sign off on something and just all these sanity checks in ways that we can control about you know, limits for how much can be sent. So all those things in place are, it's never going to be one magic bullet about why um, you know, we're completely different from them. It's usually the accumulation of a lot of little things, policies, procedures, and you know, obviously the technology stuff. Sure, sure. Is is this so? Is this the, you know, is this the the turning point? Do you think is this Malgox 2.0 where there's there's going to be a change and we're going to see a legitimate shift in the way things are done, or do you think this is just another kind of point? Well, how, how do you see this? Is this the you know the flash crash for the HF the turn on HFT, or is this something different, not as big? Well, from the from the tech side, I think this is a, a turning point. Um, there are several obvious takeaways here. Um, you know, it's been known for a while that multisig just makes it linearly more difficult to hack your wallet. In other words, if it's if it's X, if the difficulty of hacking your wallet is X, then the difficulty of hacking hacking uh, uh, two hot wallet keys is two X, which is not very good. Sure. Um, so multisig is good. There's nothing wrong with multisig, but like Paul said, there are a lot of other organizational policies and procedures related to just simple risk management stuff, um, and it's it's the accumulation of all of those that we're going to see. Uh, happening going forward like for example out of out of band uh, address verification for withdrawal addresses something that is not really happening right now a lot of bitcoin exchanges will 
uh, quote unquote verify the address to which a Bitcoin withdrawal transaction is 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 going, but the the security and the the crypto credentials for that are stored on the server uh, where the withdrawal addresses are stored. So if you compromise the server, you have this kind of central point of weakness. Um, and I think we'll we'll definitely see a turning point where people start to spread that risk around a little bit within their infrastructure, and uh, and have a, a a situation where you don't have a single point of failure anymore. Mm-hmm. So from a tech side, yeah, turning point. Okay, Paul, what are you any opinion on this? Yeah, I, I would say it's a turning point, and also just yet another step in the evolution of our understanding of these systems. You know, it, it should be noted that that Bitfinex um, had a very different security model than, than Mt. Gox, for example. And in implementing that, um, there might have been some weaknesses. I, I, again, I, I don't know anything, so I can't comment. But I'm sure in any kind of complex operation, whether you're transitioning to multi-sig wallets or working with an outside vendor such as BitGo, in, as in, in this case, um, there are always implementation kind of defects sometimes. And I think the, it's going to be good for the community to kind of understand these so that other firms can, can learn from it. Because I'm sure there isn't you know, a major exchange in the world that isn't re-looking at every single internal policy procedure, security setup, or architecture, especially if you're using you know, a multi-sig um, um, approach with an outside vendor that isn't reevaluating all these things. And I think that's broadly healthy for the long term. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, have either of you seen anything in terms of who might be behind this? Have you heard anything of any rumblings? I mean, I saw one thing on, again, Reddit, you know, good or bad, uh, where somebody po- someone posted on another message board and their name was Bitfinex hacker backwards. And they said they were sending out the, the Bitcoins to people. If, you know, <laughs> I don't know, you know, what, what have you, have you guys, do you have heard anything like that? Or? By the way, just in case it's clear, we, we love Reddit. So just, <laughs> um, you know, I, you know, just, just so that message is out there. And, and yeah, there has been somebody that has kind of, you know, shown some, um, you know, pretty, pretty interesting proof and, and, and giveaways and things of that nature that, that he might have access to quite a bit of large Bitcoin and, and has insight, sort of knowledge about this, this potential attack. Um, but obviously, if that individual were the person behind it, um, is not going to ever give something that's so conclusive that would kind of compromise himself in terms of you know whether he gets arrested or not. So sure. it'll always be that fundamentally kind of difficult thing to ascertain whether he was actually the person behind it. But um, you know, there it's definitely sparking interesting discussions either way. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, this has been great to get your perspective. Kind of change gears a little bit. Just do you want to give the the listeners just an update on the status of LedgerX? Some stuff you guys are, are working on, maybe. Yeah. So, you know, LedgerX, um, our approach has always been to, to be a U.S. federally regulated exchange, but also equally, if not more importantly, a clearinghouse. You know, I, I think a clearinghouse is the legal institution that can custody Bitcoin in transit um, when people are trying to transact, whether for derivatives or other, other types of swaps. And so what we've done is we've applied to the CFTC for those two licenses. We received provisional approval for the exchange license. And, you know, we're in the summertime right now. We're still awaiting approval for the clearinghouse license, um, which we're hoping, you know, will happen sometime this fall. And at that point, um, you know, we'll go live here in the United States and, and offer a centrally cleared product for options on Bitcoin. Okay, great, great. Uh, I want to, you know, we always like to change gears and do a little non-fintech talk on, on the podcast. And, uh, you know, I, I brought this up to you guys before, and I mentioned Mr. Robot, and Zach kind of <laughs> chuckled a little bit. Now, I, uh, I, I've been trying to get Anthony Maliki and the U.S. editor, my co-host, to get on, and he hasn't really been involved. You guys are way smarter about this stuff than I am, especially you, Zach, being the CTO here. You kind of laughed at how Mr. Robot was displayed. Why is it? What, what's your opinion on it? Well, I, I thought it was a little too much of a deadpan. It's kind of like that show Silicon Valley. You watch and it's like, okay, this is a little too realistic. Uh, <laughs> some of the, you know, some of the the paradigms there are are a little too familiar and 
uh, maybe a little too real for it to be entertaining to me personally. So okay. <laughs> it's, uh, it's it, you know, you, you see a deadpan joke and sometimes it's funny and sometimes it sort of falls flat. So I, I think it's a great show for anyone who's, who's not um, involved in tech too much. But but if you are, it's kind of like watching Silicon Valley. It just reminds you too much of your own, you know, startup adventures. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely echo what Zach says. Uh, you know, I, I I think I try to watch a few episodes, but it is a little too close to home, which is why I stopped watching Silicon Valley as well. Well, yeah, so you guys brought up Silicon. That's another show I love. But again, yeah. I'm you know I'm swimming in the kiddie pool. You guys are in the deep end, so you you have a deeper understanding of this stuff. Is it? Yeah, we, we don't know how deep it is exactly, but it, it, it does feel pretty deep um, these days. But you know, Silicon Valley has the unfortunate thing of like. Um, coming on Sunday right before you go to work. So all right. the things that they're bringing up is like sort of the stuff you're kind of like is percolating in your head right before you have to go to sleep to go to work the next day anyway. So it's, it is a little too close. I, I prefer things like totally out, outside my field like suits or you okay. know, something like that. But, so. I was just going to say, I think, I think the latest episode has the, the future of our company there. If we want to yeah. take, <laughs> take a look ahead, is that realistic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's you guys, I guess the parallel, I don't know if you're familiar with the show The Newsroom that used to be on HBO, but yep. I used to watch that, and I'm not on TV production, but as someone that's in the media, you kind of watch it, and you're like, oh, you start nitpicking. You're like, that's not exactly true, yeah, and, that, right. and then it's like, this is like my job, so I kind of can relate to you guys the how, you know, it's fun for me to watch, look at something that I'm not, I'm only very much on the peripheral of, but for you guys that it's your life, it's a little bit of a different yeah, uh, situation different, for sure. Um, well, I get, you know, before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like, you think is worth mentioning about the Bitfinex uh, breach? I know we, we touched on a lot of different areas. I think this is great for the listeners to hear. But anything else you feel like really worth drilling in on? I mean, I'll, I'll let Zach kind of bring his point. But, you know, the, the thing I always try to emphasize in, in my interface with, with people outside the company is just to emphasize that this is yet just another learning experience. And it's not specific to Bitcoin. You know, just how there are a lot of lessons drawn from all the various cybersecurity weaknesses exposed over the decades, computer weaknesses in general. Um, this, this will be, you know, it's, it's hard, obviously, and nobody wants to see this kind of thing happen. Um, it's very unfortunate, but, you know, there'll be a lot that's learned from it. And, and I think, again, not specific to Bitcoin. This, mm-hmm. this happens um, more broadly. Cybersecurity is obviously uh, an important issue for things well beyond Bitcoin. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'll just keep that in mind. Sure. Zach? Yeah, this, objectively speaking, this should not change anyone's perspective on things like multi-signature security. It's a great technology. It works well, but you have to implement it properly, just like anything else. Uh, and if you're going to, you know, have credentials for your multi-sig service on, this, on the same machine or in the same infrastructure or otherwise accessible to the attacker um, in, the, in the same domain where your hot wallet signing key is, that's just not going to work. So uh, that and a variety of other risk management uh, procedures like out-of-band address verification uh, and TPMs, HSMs, all that stuff needs to be implemented going forward. And, and then I think we'll be looking at a better situation for Bitcoin security. Great. Well, listen, Paul, Zach, I really appreciate both of you taking the time to, to chat with me today. I know it's a bit of a hectic time, especially for someone like you guys in, in this space, but it's been great to, to hear your perspective. And thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Thank you. All right. And that's it. And thanks so much for joining us. And uh, be sure to tune in uh, next Thursday.